Ladies and gentlemen, gentlemen, gentlemen. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch, and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. Two producers this week, Chris Flannery and Terrence Malagone. Uh, two producers, two guests. First up, James Andrew Miller, the uh, best-selling author, the uh, podcaster, the producer, the media consultant, Spidney guest on the show many, many times. His podcast is Origins with James Andrew Miller, and we have a really good conversation on ESPN and politics and uh, Jimmy Pitaro uh, sort of going on a tour, basically, to say that we have toned down our uh, political commentary. And Jim and I get into, like, you know, what that means. Uh, is ESPN spinning? And all sorts of interesting stuff. In addition to that, we talk about ESPN Plus and where that is now. Bob Iger and his thoughts on ESPN, the Monday Night Football decision to bring back the Testor-McFarland combination, what the uh, Ruiz-Joshua fight meant for DAZN, and finally, a long discussion on Stephen A. Smith, his contract renegotiation, and what kind of power he has at ESPN. I think you're going to enjoy all that. Second part of this is Jen Hildreth. She is calling the 2019 Women's World Cup for Fox. She's also a play-by-play person for ESPN and the SEC Network. Has had a uh, really good and uh, long career doing many different things. But uh, Jen and I discuss um, how to prepare for the 2019 Women's World Cup. She and uh, Kendra St. Aubin were terrific in 2015, sort of the breakout stars, and they'll be back together calling a number of games, Spain, South Africa, Cameroon, Canada. And so we get into a lot of World Cup talk and also why Jen decided to head towards play-by-play and uh, and what that means for the generation after her in terms of women becoming play-by-play, particularly for men's sports. So Jim Miller, James Andrew Miller first, and then Jen Hildreth coming up on the Sports Media Podcast. James Andrew Miller has been a guest on this podcast many times. He is a writer, he is an executive, he's a producer, he's a podcaster, and he's a media consultant. His podcast, Origins with James Andrew Miller, explores the beginnings of some of the most celebrated successes of our time. He has a number of them, including uh, Sex in the City, his ESPN Origins podcast, that is a part of the Cadence 13 family, the same family that I am part of. And for these purposes on this podcast, we'll be talking about ESPN and the intersection of sports and politics, sports and culture. Jimmy Pitaro has been out there a lot talking about ESPN and politics. And with that, Jim Miller returns to the Sports Media Podcast. Jim, welcome back. Thanks, Harvey. Uh, is there anything else you want to promote before we start? I know that t- today, I believe, as we're taping this, is the eighth anniversary of your uh, These Guys Have All the Fun book, right? Yeah, those guys have all the fun. Yeah, those guys yeah. have all the fun. I'm sorry, right? Eight years. That's, that's cool. Eight. Can you believe eight years? Jeez. I was I was six four and blonde before it was published. It was um, I know. quite the journey. When are you expecting that? When are you expecting that movie to come out? Twenty thirty five. I don't. You know, it's being budgeted <laughs> and all that stuff. Uh, uh, you know, it's like that. That business is just crazy, but mm. it's still going on. All right. See if you can get Jennifer Lawrence to play some part. This feels like that'd be successful. Crystal Flocka. <laughs> or Lady Gaga, now that she's an actress. All right, Jim, I'm going to read you two quotes that Jimmy Pataro told Peter Kafka of Recode. Peter Kafka, totally respected interviewer, highly recommend his work. So, Jim, here is the first one, and I just want you to respond to open-ended how you view what Jimmy Pataro is saying here. Open quote. We have not pulled back on the intersection of sports and culture and sports and politics. 
If there's something that happens out there that is at that intersection, we will absolutely cover it. And we will cover it in an exemplary fashion, period. So the, my, my response is it's about the pronoun we, because I think what he's talking about is we as ESPN, the network as a collective. But I think if he were to say we in terms of all the disparate parts and, the, and more specifically the personalities and on-air personalities of ESPN, then that's not the case. So I think ESPN has pivoted now to a point where, you know, several years ago, you had a lot of people, particularly on social media, uh, opining on their own views, and it was like the wild, wild west, and it was very, very hard to navigate how to control that. Uh, you know, what were they public people? Were they private individuals? Was there own was their own Twitter feed, their own domain and the intellectual property attendant to that, a reflection just of them. And it took quite a while. I did a Origins podcast on the um the origins of social media at ESPN and it was um it was really a circuitous, very difficult roller coaster route. I think that one of the things that has happened now and I guess what Jimmy is speaking to is they've they've really kind of gotten their arms around that policy more and more people understand it as a result of things like suspensions and very, very controversial issues that have come up. And I think that now the network is, you know, somewhat on terra firma in terms of how they're approaching sports and politics. So I think he has a right to say that. I think that that, that is probably not um, taking into account, though, the idea that there are people at ESPN who aren't speaking about the nexus of sports and politics in their own way. And quite frankly, I think the fans, it seems like the fans want that. I know that Bob Iger and Disney want that to be the case. And it doesn't seem like anybody's, you know, calling out a specific personality to say, hey, what's your thought on this or that? So, um, you know, it seems to be working for them. Let me read you this, and then I will sort of eventually respond to what you just said. This is, again, Jimmy Pitaro. What we don't want is people to tune into ESPN or people to tune into an ESPN feed on a social platform and get pure political commentary. We don't believe that's who we are. We don't believe that's why people tune into ESPN. And by the way, we've talked about this a bunch in the past, but we try to make as many decisions as possible based on data. And we've done a lot of research in this area, and our fans have told us that this is not why they tune into ESPN. Your reaction. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I guess, I, I mean, I agree. I, I agree. And I think that, I think that one of the things that they've decided to do is, uh, make sure that ESPN is a destination for what, what you think it should be. Uh, it got, it got unwieldy. I mean, it's a hard thing saying to someone who's an employee and who has a platform and who cares passionately about a specific issue or something that, you know, you as an individual can't express that opinion. I think that there are cases where they can, uh, but I will tell you that I've heard from several ESPN employees who, you know, over the past couple of months, as we've seen some of these states change their um, abortion laws and their definition of life, that there have been people out there who wish that they could use their their social media and want to talk about how upsetting or in some cases maybe how supportive they are of that, 
but they know that they can't. And it's just one of the things that a company like ESPN has to manage in this, you know, in, in this age. All right, a couple things here. Uh, Bob Iger recently told Reuters that it would be very difficult for the media company, meaning Disney, to keep filming in Georgia if a new abortion law takes place because many people, in his words, will not want to work in that U.S. state. Jim, do you feel there's hypocrisy for Bob Iger being able to comment publicly on um, Georgia and abortion laws where Jimmy Pitaro is telling his people at ESPN, uh, we don't want you to talk about this on your social platform? Do you find that to be a hypocritical stance? That um, uh, it's certainly, well, let's put it this way. If uh, an ESPN employee were to tweet, I'm not going to be involved in any productions in Georgia because of this, or I don't think we should be, then that would be a problem. I think what Bob is doing is he's speaking on behalf of the entire company and trying to reflect the attitudes and opinions of a lot of employees. So in that respect, I don't think it's hypocritical. I think he's just literally trying to make a case for how the company as a whole. See, that's the problem, which is when you get into individuals expressing their own orthodoxies and their own opinions about political stuff, then it becomes, um, well, not only unmanageable, but then it becomes so heightened that you're starting to become more of a political entity than you are a sports entity, or at least there's that possibility. And it gets, as we saw several years ago, it just gets wildly out of control. I think as the CEO of the company, as the chairman and CEO, he's always got a responsibility to, to kind of speak on behalf of the company. And that's not me being a corporate toady. That's just me. You know, if I was in his position, I'd want to say the same thing because you've got to talk on behalf of the employees. Okay. I think it's hypocritical, but I, I certainly respect where you're coming from. And I understand the, um, the business element. A couple more things. There's a lot to sort of go on here and I, I want to try to get as much Wait, stuff as The hypocritical part though, you think is because he's saying something that the employees can't? I believe that if um, let's just use uh, I, I I don't want to use an employee as an as an example sort of to tip a hand or anything, but let's say Jamel Hill was still employed by ESPN and she tweeted the exact statement that Bob Iger did yeah, no, no, it's on her Twitter feed. Yeah. The reaction the reaction from ESPN and Disney would be far different because Jamel Hill tweeted it as opposed to Bob Iger. That's that's my opinion on that. Yeah, no, no, no. I believe I, I said that. I, I think that's true, but I also feel like there is a there is a kind of a difference. Well, there is. Yeah, of course. Bob Iger. Bob Iger has the Iron Throne. Bob Iger no, makes no, no, the no. rules. No, no, no. Speaking on behalf of the entire company, and she's speaking as an individual. I understand. I I I, I understand that 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 difference. Um, but it gets into the larger the larger issue that me and you have spoken about on this podcast many times as to how much of the narrative, which I believe a lot of it was disingenuous and, and, and fueled by people who were using ESPN for their own benefit, how much, of, how much politics was really being spoken on ESPN proper versus ESPN social media feeds. And again, if you're Bob Iger or Jimmy Pitaro, you might think that's a, that's, that's, there's no difference there. You know, there's, a, there's no distinction there. But the reality is, you weren't tuning into Sports Center and getting debates on uh, Brexit and the Ukraine, where politics was existing, and essentially politics existing 
under the prism of Donald Trump was existing on people's social media feeds. And that was getting amplified. And Disney and I, you know, listen, it's their prerogative to make this decision. They felt that that was getting out of control, that their individual commentators or voices were putting this into the social media ecosystem. And that's what was getting amplified and they believed was hurting Disney. Now, let, let me ask you this, Jim. Um, because this is interesting to me. So I uh, let me, and I want to know how you feel both on a uh, ESPN's decision here and whether you believe this. And I think you do believe this. So I asked ESPN about the following. This is I, I sent a note to ESPN PR and asked them, what is the specific data Jimmy Pataro is referring to specifically here in an LA Times story that fans do not want ESPN to cover politics? I asked, will ESPN provide such data regarding who in the public was asked, sample size of the survey, research responses, etc. And then I asked him if ESPN opts not to provide said data, will ESPN make the person who ran the research available to speak? Perhaps not surprising at all to you, Jim. The response on the record I got was, we're not going to comment on the specifics of the research. To be fair to them, they did background me and say that, you know, uh, we do these kind of proprietary surveys all the time. We talk to fans, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So do I believe there's data out there? Yeah, I don't believe they're lying to me. But I wonder if you keep putting this into the ecosystem, is there a responsibility from ESPN to explain what the methodology is, what they asked, and and where this is coming from? Or because they're a private company, they don't got to do that? Well, they're not a private company. Public, yeah, I mean, well, because I guess you're, you're correct. Because the research is proprietary, I meant to say, they don't yeah, have to Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's very rare for uh, content companies in particular, let's just say, uh, to to talk about their own research uh, and what they're what they're gleaning from their audience, and as the years have progressed, by the way, these these analytics have become increasingly more sophisticated. And ESPN has it's kind of like their NSC. Um, you know, they <laughs> they have they they have a very very uh, animated, dynamic research department that they they know. They know a lot about their audience, and I don't think, from a competitive point of view, uh, they're good, they're about to, you know, they're about to start letting letting us behind the curtain of that. Um, I think that you know, look, I I happen to, I, I don't think they're bullshitting though, because I, I think that, you know, I I don't know about you, but I think that a lot of times when, you know, I'm on panels or give a speech and question and answers and everything else, I think people got to a point of diminishing marginal returns on the politicalization that uh, ESPN found itself in over a period, you know, particularly like over a period of those five key years, um, several years ago. And I think that people kind of got wiped out. And when you, when you're listening to, when you're watching Scott Van Pelt or when you're watching somebody or whatever, um, you know, you, you don't really want to know or need to know. And I think that also more importantly, the six o'clock sports center that Jamel and Michael did, um, I think it was, I think both of them were set up for failure. I think it was, you know, probably one of, one of, one of the great rat fucks of, uh, ESPN programming in, um, you know, in, in recent memory. Um, just because it, it really, there was, there was just, I, I could, I could write 10,000 words on it. It was just a mess. But the point is that the audience, um, did not respond to that. And you could say, well, that may have been because of Michael, or that may have been because Jamel. I don't, 
I don't think that was the case. I think it was the DNA of it was so poorly designed and they were set up in a, in a really destructive way. Um, and I think the audience just said, no, look, when we turn on sports center at six o'clock, we, we want to know, you know, we want to know about sports and we want to see the highlights on the afternoon games. We want to be set up for the evening, evening games and, you know, analysis or whatever, but we don't need to see Barack Obama, you know, pictures in the background or hear about any of, uh, you know, any of the political agendas that might be attendant to what was going on. So in some ways, we, we kind of saw it ourselves. Uh, first of all, I love when you curse on this podcast. So thank oh, you very much apologies. for that. I'm sorry. Uh, no, no, it's good. Uh, and yeah, listen, the person I'd love to get to is Barry Blinn, vice president of consumer insights. Like that guy's know, knows where some of the secrets or the bodies are buried. Um, the, the one thing I would say, uh, and I, I think your point on, uh, Jamel and Michael, we could do, you know, three hours on that in terms of sort of being set up in terms of, you know, when things were going down, there were certainly a lot of internal people there who wanted that, that show away. Uh, including Norby Williamson, but you know, I, I found, you know, Leanne Shriver, the uh, the great sports editor of the New York Times, the I think far and away the best ombudsman that ESPN has ever had. In she passed away this week, and in looking I know, for, I'm so glad you brought that up because she was just she was an amazing woman, and she was a terrific ombudsman, and it's really sad that we lost her. Yeah, phenomenal talent. And um, so in looking, I did a I did a Q&A with her when she started and when she finished. I couldn't find it. I think Sports Illustrated CMS has changed too many times. But one of the things I did find was in 2011, um, this is during her reign, I, I wrote a piece on should broad, should sports broadcasters get political. And it was like it was it was like so eye opening to me that so much of this stuff, Jim, was happening before, like Paul Azinger tweeted out something about Barack Obama's job creation saying POTUS has played more golf this month than I have. I have created more jobs this month than he has. I mean, the irony of like Barack Obama being uh, criticized for golf in the Trump year is funny, but like the thing, my point is that like this stuff's been going on all the time. Like this is not politics is not new. If you even call that politics, I mean, again, in 2012, uh, Mike Lupica, who was hired by ESPN on the Sports Reporters, was writing a left-leaning political column for the Daily News every week. Elsie Granerson was working for CNN um, listen, in stuff had, relating listen, to politics. Had, Stephen, you know, Stephen A. Stephen A. Smith called Rudy Giuliani a dictator in terms of his New York City tenure. All I'm saying is this: none of this stuff. One, none of this stuff is two. Two, the fact is these are not the best examples here, but sports and politics are 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 intertwined in our life from Jesse Owens to, to Carlos and Smith. And right, we had fifth in the year a, in 1968. I mean, but yeah, I don't it's just, think it's you frustra- can It's frustrating to me that, again, I understand everything that the research says and what Pataro says. I do feel like there is, this is just my opinion, I do feel like there is a part of them that caved to um, to bad press in, in what I think in many times was disingenuous bad press. That's all I have to say on that, but go ahead. I didn't mean to take the floor. No, no, no. I just, I think the difference is, um, that, and, and I think that we saw this from like 20, 2009 onwards, uh, social media was so new and there was such a learning curve, both for individuals, but also for companies. And right. I think that, you know, that's the difference in, in 68 or in, you know, Jesse Owens in 36 in Munich. And I mean, those were obviously unbelievably iconic moments. But then when you, when you arm somebody with a telephone, their own telephone and their own feed, 
And these are people that have few unspoken thoughts. So they, they are, they're writers and they're opinion makers and they're very agile about delivering their own opinions. Once you cross into that political spectrum, I mean, I think it becomes unwieldy. And I think that every single day, I mean, people, people at General Mills today are talking about, you know, what's their brand and what's their not, and what's not their brand and what's deleterious to their brand and everything else. I think media companies get to do that. I mean, Roger did that with Fox News and, uh, in a, in a, in a very specific way, but you get to do, you, you get to protect your brand and you get to understand your brand and project your brand to the public in ways that you think are going to be best for your business. Um, so I, you know, I'm, I'm not surprised that it's, you know, I said this several years ago, but we kind of saw this coming because otherwise it's just, it's, it's too unwieldy. It's, and it, and it becomes, um, and, and at the end of the day, it does, it's not about sports. Even if it's talking about the, the nexus of sports and politics, once you start having individuals, you know, weighing in on all these different things, um, like that, it just, it, it becomes less and less about sports. All right, I understand that. And again, as I've said a thousand times in this podcast, it, it it is easy for me to take the position I am taking because I do not run Disney. I don't have shareholders. Um, I don't have to think about 8,000 employees. So I, I, I get all that, and I appreciate your perspective there, Jim. You, there was something that you wanted, I know, to comment on. I don't know where he said this, but um, you were mentioning to me before we taped that Bob Iger has said recently – that he thinks the ESPN brand is better than ever, and I guess is resonating with fans better than ever. What's your what's your thought on on Iger's thesis statement there? Well, I mean, I think that that's part. That's an extension of what we're talking about. You know, I mean, I think that they they have look. There were two things that Jimmy was charged with more than others when he became president. One is to get. To, to, to kind of like diffuse this political bomb. And the second is to make sure that things with Park Avenue and the NFL were improved. And uh, I think that he's done both. Um, it, by the way, it's very helpful when you become president of a network to have such major deliverables that kind of like our tsunami that wash over everything else. I mean, there, there were things that he had to do and, you know, obviously it's a big place and there were a lot of, there's a, there were a lot of, uh, you know, the proverbial forks in the road in terms of this show or that show or a big contract or whatever. But, um, you know, I think that, look, with Kevin leading the charge, Kevin Mayer leading the charge on streaming from the West Coast, I think those were the two big things for Jimmy. And I think he really focused on them, um, you know, very early and, and hit them both hard. And so uh, as a result, I think Bob, you know, Bob is happy to say that because, uh, you know, that, that, that is really, uh, materialized and, you know, in a, in a profound way, particularly in the last year. Yeah. One of the things in reading that Kafka, uh, interview with Jimmy Pitaro is just how much Jimmy Pitaro's wanted this job for such a long time. Um, it's pretty interesting just how people work in the corporate world in terms of the planning of that. The, um, well, I, I, had, uh, you know, I, I had gotten into a little bit of trouble with, uh, with the powers that be in terms of talking about how there were times when Bob had asked Skipper to have Jimmy come out and be his number two. And, uh, Skipper had, um, 
politely um, declined that opportunity. So I think that, um, you know, it, it's clear that Jimmy had wanted that for a long time. I think to be part of ESPN even, not even just to be president, because I think um, my understanding is he would have been more than happy to have uh, worked under John when John was there. Um, but Well, I mean, more than happy until a certain day. I mean, it seems like ambitious guys like Pitar don't want to be number two forever, though, right? No, but I think that I think he's also focused at that particular time on his career, and you never know because who knows whether Skipper would stay or leave or get promoted himself or take another job or whatever. But the idea, I think the, the primary idea was to give up what he was doing in Burbank and go to Bristol and be part of ESPN and also to be part of ESPN as the number two. If you remember when Skipper was president, not to get in the weeds, but – he had like at sometimes eleven, twelve direct reports, and there was always right. that, you know, there was always uh, you know people who were involved in Bristol, like, well, who's in favor now, who's not, who's you know who really is the number two, who's the go-to when Skipper's not around, and by the way, the go-to when Skipper wasn't around was no one, because right. uh, you know no one could do, no one could predict what John was really thinking about, and John knew what he wanted more than. Um, you know, anybody else there. That's nothing against uh, John or his, you know, subordinates, but he was a very strong number one. It wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't a, a big thing about delegation. Yeah, I actually think uh, Skipper intentionally did not have a number two, uh, which is kind of a Game of Thrones move there, that if you don't have a successor, you don't have a number two, you give yourself some job security. Um, all right, a couple more topics before I let you go here. One of the things I think that's been really impressive by ESPN has been their ESPN Plus um, acquisitions and just how they've rolled that out. So you give Burke Magnus and that group a lot of credit. They've gotten some fantastic rights, especially in soccer. If you're a UFC fan, you, you almost have to have ESPN Plus at this point. From your sort of uh, you know 10,000 feet above the air, Jim, uh, ESPN Plus obviously is where they are going to be building what they hope is their future. You know, try to get as much money from the cable bundle for as long as you can and build up the ESPN Plus model for as long as you can. And then maybe at a certain point, however many years down the road, some of these premium events will be on Plus. ESPN Plus gets more expensive, et cetera, whatever it is. But it's very clear what they're doing. So far, the rollout, I feel like, of ESPN Plus has been excellent. Um, I give them credit for that. Well, how do you see ESPN Plus so far? Well, I think Burke has done a terrific job. I was actually hoping he was going to become Big Ten commissioner because he's a he's a talented guy. But uh, but I think that here's the key: the company is willing to lose money to get this going and to build for the future. They're clearly running a marathon, not a dash. They're down. I mean, I think that they're probably you know four or five million. The, the numbers are great; they're above two million, but their break even is you know could be five or six. And right. they're okay because they're obviously planning for the the ultimate, the Disney bundle, which is going to be, you know, the different verticals. And so they'll have sports and they'll have kids and they'll have entertainment and whatever. And Disney's acquisition of Hulu, um, you know, obviously is a big step toward that. So they're playing long ball. And I think that um, as long as they're willing to lose the money that they're losing – uh, you know, everything else is, uh, you know, seems pretty, pretty, pretty good. But I think that there's, there's a lot of companies out there that wouldn't have the toler to, to be able to tolerate that. Um, you know, they just, they just, they just couldn't do it. So we'll see whether ultimately or not. I mean, the biggest, 
the biggest definition of success ultimately is going to be whether or not it's, it's financially successful. Um, right. That's what Disney cares about, and that's what Disney shareholders care about. And I think it's, you know, I think it's too early to, to know that. So what they're doing is they're trying to build it the way that they think they can. And uh, it's just interesting that after spending as much money as they have over the past decade, I mean, tens of billions of dollars on programming and acquisition, they're in a situation now where they have to go into the marketplace and spend the money that they're spending on, on things. And, uh, you know, it's, it's expensive and it's going to be expensive for everybody. Um, you know, so, uh, it will, it'll be, it'll be interesting, but I think that, you know, from a content point of view, uh, I think they're being incredibly aggressive. What did you uh, make of uh, ESPN's decision to bring back Joe Testor and Booger McFarland in a two-person booth as opposed to, you know, obviously after they couldn't get Peyton Manning, as opposed to either bringing a third person on or trying to get some recently retired NFL player into that booth? Well, I think you and I talked about this the last time um, I was on because I had said that I thought that they would wind up, I don't mean it like a jerky, I told you so, but I, I think, you know, I had said that I think it was going to wind up being the two of them, and uh, I'm not surprised. I don't, if I'm Peyton Manning, I really don't, I, I just don't, what, what's the upside of going into the booth? I mean, minute one, you're compared to Tony Romo, you're, you're tied to, uh, you know, to 17 weeks, uh, but it's 17 weeks plus rehearsal, studying, everything else. And so that gets in the way of a lot of the other kind of stuff that Peyton does. Um, he's doing some streaming stuff that he, you know, he controls. It's not like he's competitive with somebody else on it. It can be exactly tailored to his personality. Uh, you know, so I wasn't surprised that Peyton didn't go for it. And I think that, you know, right now, um, you know, that was probably the, the, the best and easiest way for them to, you know, to structure the booth. But, you know, I, it will be, it'll be interesting to see because, um, you know, these things take, take time and the rhythm and the personalities. And even though he was around on the sidelines and we're in Boogermobile, you know, it's like, well, we'll, we'll see what, uh, we'll see what that's like. If you had to guess today, do you think Bob Lee's coming back to ESPN? Yes. Hmm. Okay. In, Near term, far term. In some, in some, in some fashion, in some, in some way or fashion. I mean, look, Bob has worked really, really hard and really, really long. And if he decides to, uh, you know, just pour a couple glasses of wine and call it a day, uh, you know, he he deserves that, and that's that's his decision. But I think that they. I, I think that there, you know, at least I hope that there would be some way that he that something could be worked out. Yeah, I, 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 I don't know if he'll comes he comes back to being full time host of Outside the Lines, but I think I think we will see him on air again. But to, you know, he certainly earned the right to do um, yeah whatever whatever doing he wishes. A long time. And, I mean, look, I wouldn't mind. Yeah. You know, when Walter Cronkite left the CBS Evening News, he did like the space documentaries and he did special that's right. projects that were important to him. I mean, if Bob doesn't want to work as often as he was working before, um, you know, he deserves that. But I, I, I still, I think it's really important that, that, you know, they keep him, they do everything they can to try and keep him. And, uh, you certainly would want, um, him around for, uh, breaking news on, on, on certain things that are, you know, beyond, uh, I mean, God forbid there was, you know, like another 
San Francisco earthquake or something like that. Just having Bob there, he's got, he's got tremendous gravitas and he does breaking news, you know, you know, in a really terrific way. So I would, I would think that they should have him there. Yeah, my old journalism professor, Sandy Padway, called him the conscience of ESPN, which I believe is, is true. Um, all right, last one. You were at the uh, Anthony Joshua uh, Ruiz fight, right? Yeah, by the way, it's, it's, it's quite a thrill to have a better body than the guy who's boxing for the uh, heavyweight <laughs> championship of the world. But Andy Ruiz Jr., the heavyweight champion. Although it's, it's, it's actually such a great... Man. That guy... He had so exactly. much gut, and it was just, it was amazing to be there. I mean, it was just stunning. That third round was incredible. And uh, I give the guy, I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. He reaches out on DM, you know, uh, direct messages, uh, you know, Eddie, and gets this fight. And uh, it's, I mean, it was, it, was quite, it was quite the fight. And what was also stunning was to see Anthony Joshua after the fight hanging around and like putting his arm around them and smiling yeah, cool. and he was like generally happy for him. I mean, it was, I, I don't think I've seen, uh, you know, a championship fight like that. When you lose those, man, you're like, you either had the crap beat out of you and you got to go back to the locker room and get, you know, ice all over your face or something, or you're just so pissed off that you're, you know, you, you leave. But I thought the uh, minutes after the, the the fight was over were, equally uh not equally but they were they were incredibly interesting yeah again um in athletics you know never judge a body uh by performance because you you don't know there's been you know fat athletes who have been incredible in their sport and this guy obviously and again i'm I'm no boxing uh expert but andy ruiz jr clearly is pretty powerful puncher and you know that's the great thing about the sport you know you sort of get a puncher's chance and that guy that guy that guy won the fight, but here's my, you know, this is we'll let the boxing experts uh, um, talk about the upset of Anthony Joshua. But what do you think this means for DeZone, Jim? Because to me, like this is the dream, um, the the dream result for DeZone. Because if Anthony Joshua just rolls this guy, it's just another fight. And you know, I know people are looking forward to Anthony Joshua fighting Wilder or whatever else in the future. But now, like. Everybody's talking about this fight. People saying, like, you know, it's the uh, one of the biggest upsets in boxing history. They're bringing up the Douglas Tyson stuff. There's so like the word "disown" is like in every uh, news story. So, like to me, like this is this is the this this result is the ultimate dream for them. They could not have gotten a better result. They'll get the rematch, and the whole world is going to be curious about the rematch just because of the unexpected. Um, Upset now again. I don't know what that means long term for his own in terms of finances and people subscribing. But you know, if you're the leadership of that place, John Skipper in particular, man, that to me that you could not have had a better night. That is a that is that is the ultimate dream result. Anthony Joshua winning in four rounds would have done nothing for you, in my opinion. Well, I think you've done a good job of answering your question. Thank you. Yeah, we're done. No, Take I care, mean, no, but I, I I do. I think it was great. I mean, look, everybody. There were a lot of people who didn't even. Um, really register with the fight and uh, uh, sign on for the fight because one of the things about Joshua was that he was so dominant. Uh, it was hard getting, you know, great challengers, and all of a sudden there's this terrific upset, and everybody's seeing the zone on their feed, and yeah, of course they, you know, they'll have the rematch. And I think it's, uh, I think in some ways it was pretty good for boxing too because, you know, I mean it's that 
rocky type of story and he he's a, an amazing personality uh and figure to uh to come on the scene so i yeah i think it could be i think it could be really good for them all right we'll see last one Stephen a smith contract renegotiations uh does he stay at espn you think long term and does he become the highest paid individual talent at ESPN, which I think if he stays at ESPN is going to be the case. Oh yeah. I, I think it's uh, yes and yes. I okay. think it's yes and yes. I think that, you know, he has to be careful. I think that stuff with magic, um, it's terrible. So we, it was a, we, a disgrace to sell Baxter Holmes under the bus. I, I think that that is look, you know, I think sometimes that stuff is just as important as the considerations about politics, which is how you treat, uh, you know, fellow employees and what are the, I mean, obviously you can be controversial and, and everything else, but I think that, look, Tony Kornheiser once got suspended for talking about Hannah Storm's outfits and, um, and saying some negative things about her because the whole idea was you don't treat colleagues that way. And I think that both from a journalistic point of view and just a respect point of view, um, you have to be really careful about that. But look, Mark Shapiro and is involved in the renegotiations of, uh, you know, of Stephen A's contract. And I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't bet against them. And I think that just given the fact that Gruden's gone, and Berman's marginalized. Um, I, I, there's just there's just no numbers that um, Coward's gone, Bayless is gone. There's just no numbers salary wise out there. Um, no offense against Scott Van Pelt um, or a couple others, but that that Greenberg, will, yeah, that will be able to compete with uh, what Stephen A is going to get. And and yeah. by the way, it's just worth mentioning as a footnote that Stephen A was bounced from ESPN. You know, Correct. about 10 years ago, 11 years ago. And the one of the things that I didn't get a chance to, to do in the first book was, was to talk about the campaign that Stephen A. waged and some key people inside of ESPN waged in order to, as they put it at the time, rehabilitate him and get him back in the door. And if you think there are no second acts, um, I think only... Let's see. Susie Culver went to Fox and came back to ESPN. I'm trying to think. It, it's it's a very it's a very hard thing to do to go someplace else and come back, or in the case of Stephen A, to really not not be wanted and then come back. And so, whatever you want to say about Stephen A. Smith, the fact that he was able to engineer that. Um, you know, that encore, and then to do it to the degree that he's done it now, where he's about to become the most, you know, the probably the, the highest paid person on the network. Um, it's pretty extraordinary. Who was the key person who helped bring him back at ESPN? Who was the insider, in your opinion? I think it was Rob King. Yeah, I agree with that. I think, I think it was Rob King, and I think it's, it's actually, um, with all due respect to Rob, who, you know, I think is a, is a good man, I think it's one of the most successful things that he's done at the company um, because, uh, you know. Well, that, yeah, mean, that, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's, that would be a subjective view on how you feel about Stephen A's content. But, yeah, in terms of a, a no, no, bring back re- rehabilitation, I agree with you a thousand percent. Yeah, in terms of his goal, yeah. 
Let me ask you. Let me. Uh, here's. I just want to. Um, again, you know, far be it for me to 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 counter the the man who wrote the book on this. But that's the only thing I would say, and I, I do want to get your opinion on this. You mentioned Stephen A. in terms of you know sort of being careful with colleagues and stuff, um, saying stuff. I feel like there's a Jordan rules for a couple of guys at ESPN, and Stephen A. is one of them. He, far and away, I consider him the face that runs the place. He's their most prominent on-air, front-facing person. Um, some might say Van Pelt. I disagree. I think it's Stephen A., and I think it's Stephen A. by a lot, just given the sheer magnitude that we see him on uh, different platforms. We see him on their, the, the opinion show that they push the most. So I, I want to ask you this honestly. Do, do you really believe there are any repercussions for this guy? I, I mean, yeah, I guess if he called like one of his colleagues a murderer or something, there would be, but I, I, don't, I don't think there's going to be any repercussions about that magic interview, and I think he's... He's almost an untouchable at that place. Uh, and I think my, my evidence or my thesis would be just look at management and the stuff that he said in the, in the past, you know, uh, whether it's about Mayweather's, uh, de- you know, domestic violence stuff or threatening Kevin Durant on air on first take. I, I just, I think the rules, and, you know, listen, I guess great for him, but I, th- I think the rules are different for certain talents at ESPN. And I think far and away, the rules are different for him. Well, first of all, one quick note about the, you know, the kind of the basis of your question. Um, sure. Scott Van Pelt um, doesn't want to be Stephen A. Smith and has oh, a agree. different approach yeah. to his career. So if we think that Stephen A. is the most dominant face or whatever, that's only because he's playing a certain game. I mean, when he puts, you know, when he puts music on, he's going to turn it up to 15. Um, right. Scott Van Pelt, you know, may have it. I'm just using him as an example or Bob Lee or somebody else. Uh, you know, they may have it at, at four or five just because they don't, they don't necessarily want to be the loudest voice in the room and they don't need to have that kind of, uh, you know, be that big a blip on the radar. So I think Stephen A is playing a game that a lot of people there aren't. Um, and he's doing it, you know, obviously successfully. But I do yeah, think brilliantly. That but I, but I think that there is something to your question, and I think that this is the challenge for Connor Shell or ultimately for Jimmy, which is that no one can be, uh, you know, uh, awkwardly uh, above the law, so to speak. And if you get into exceptionalism, I mean, that's, that's one of the things that uh, the network has said uh, time and time again. And they, they went through it with Chris Berman, and there was a lot of always, a lot of, well, Berman gets away with this, and Berman gets away with this. And, you know, to some degree, it was, it was true. But I think that one of the things that they're trying to do now, particularly when you have like a, a code of conduct, and, and conduct is important, and messaging is important, and everything else, I think that there's going to be a time um, where Stephen A, if there, if there is a time when Stephen A, really pushes it, they need to do something because that's what they did. By the way, that's what they did with Bill Simmons. And I think that some of the stuff that Bill got suspended for uh, during those times were, <laughs> were far less egregious than what Stephen A has done. And the funny thing is that there's this feeling that, um, you know, Skipper was a, a very, very loose uh, you know, in terms of disciplinary action. And he took disciplinary action against Jamel and Bill and Tony and others. And I think, quite frankly, I, I mean, I don't, you can't know this for sure, 
But I wouldn't have been surprised if Skipper would have done something, maybe even like a 24-hour just get off the air or something like that with Stephen A. over the magic stuff or some of this other stuff um, that, that he's gone through recently. And I think that they need to send a signal to all the employees that no one is, um, you know, no one gets to play by different rules, especially when it's um, employee versus, you know, employee crime, because that's, that's something that, that can just get way out of control. Yeah, very interesting. I appreciate those thoughts. Uh, Jim Miller is a best-selling author. He's a writer. He's a podcaster. He's a media consultant. He's a producer. And his podcast is Origins with James Andrew Miller, which I assume will come back We're coming sooner, back. sooner than we got, later. Yeah, right? we've got four or five chapters coming this year. It just takes a while to do them. All right, it's, that's exciting. All right, listen, Jim, you're always good when I call. I appreciate you. you, you uh, you're a very big star, so when you do this small podcast, I appreciate that very much. Uh, <laughs> you're a huge star in the business, and that is, you're helping me out. All right, James Andrew Miller, everyone. Check out his work. Follow him on uh, all his social media platforms and listen to Origins. In all seriousness, Jim, this is really interesting. I appreciate it. Uh, thanks for uh, giving me some time on the Sports Media Podcast, and you will definitely be back. Thank you again. Thanks for having me. Jen Hildreth will be calling the 2019 Women's World Cup for Fox. She's also a play-by-play voice for ESPN, the SEC Network. She's also been a color analyst, a host, a reporter on various sports. But you, if you know her, you know her from her soccer coverage, which includes uh, international games, college games, and was the voice of the uh, U.S. Professional Women's League for a couple of years for Fox's purposes at the World Cup. She will be on the call with Minnesota United analyst Kendra St. Aubin. And so they got a lot of rave reviews for their work at the 2015 Women's World Cup. They will be back together. And after that 17-minute intro, welcome to the Sports <laughs> Media Podcast, Jen. Thank you so much. I'll take it. You can go as long as you want when you're saying nice things. That's fine. <laughs> All right. So one of the things, uh, you're off to Los Angeles soon to call this tournament. Uh, you were kind enough to send me a couple of your early games. You have Spain versus South Africa, Canada versus Cameroon. Christine Sinclair's is pretty uh, easy one to pronounce, at least. Chile versus <laughs> Sweden. Um, I'm, I think people would be really fascinated given all the different pronunciations, given that we don't often see all of these teams. So how do you prep for this tournament? And if you could, could you compare it to your preparation for when you do like women's softball or basketball, et cetera? Sure. Yeah. Well, um, I'm in the thick of it right now, for sure. Um, it's very much like studying for a final exam where you're just have all this information that you're just trying to jam in and get in front of you and make sure your notes are legible, especially for me, because I'm this weird old school person who insists on writing everything out. So I have to work through multiple hand cramps to, uh, to get all these teams. I have 12 different teams through the group stage that I know of. So I could get more after that, but, um, we do for a world cup, a big event like this, have the luxury of having a research staff that Fox provides and they have a website that they make available to us. So, I would say the bulk of the raw information comes from our research staff, and then it is up to me to sift through all of that information and put it into something 
that I can reference during the game, put it on my boards. So I have basic things on each of my teams, just World Cup history. And I've been building that for months. Once you know the teams that are in it, I make basic capsules on everybody. So I know the coach. I know how many times they've been to a World Cup, how they've done at Olympics, what's their best finish, just basic information, things like that. And then I work on my boards with the players, but you really can't do those until the official rosters have been announced. And those really just have been announced probably over about the last month. So you get into this time, and this is when the cramming really hits a high gear. So I've just been, I tried last week, I had this lofty goal of trying to knock out two teams a day. That didn't happen. So I'm definitely a little bit behind on that. And that's okay. I have those, all those teams that you mentioned, I have all of those, at least the very bare bones, basic stuff done. And then I will go back. So once I know all the details I need about Christine Sinclair, and she gets a separate page, by the way, because there's just so much to write about her. You mentioned her from Canada, one of the greatest women's players ever, not just in Canada, but I think in the game. So um, once I get all of that, then I will go back and I'll say, okay, which articles do I need to now add and read in and maybe add a little notes? What do I want fresh in my mind? What do I need specific to this matchup to be ready for? And I start looking a little closer at formations, recent friendlies, things like that. Maybe hopefully getting to watch some more video. I usually have some on at least in the background so I'm listening watching picking up whatever I can but uh it's it's definitely a grind at this point I am excited for the world cup but I am definitely I'm I'm in the middle of it right now in terms of the preparation so a couple things here having talked to um a number of broadcasters in the past Ian on this podcast in fact Ian Dark Arlo White uh probably someone else one of the things that really stood out to me was the lengths that they would go to for the World Cup to get a proper pronunciation, <laughs> even to the point, and I think it was Ian Dark who told me this, or maybe it was Rebecca Lowe, somebody did, that they would call the embassy of a country sometimes to get the <laughs> pronunciation. They would. They always obviously would talk to the country's publicist or PR person to do it, but they would go, you know, sometimes they would call like a local television announcer in that country or city to get the actual dialect. like It was kind of impressive just how far afield they would go to try to get the pronunciation. Have you? How are you sort of dealing with some of the names that you'll be pronouncing, you know, especially like uh, the Cameroonian team or the South African <laughs> team where they're not, you know, as traditional, traditional Anglo names as the Canadians would have or the United States would have? Yes. And I apologize. I actually, I'm going to answer your pronunciation question in a minute. I want to get back. I, I realized I forgot to answer the second part of your first question, which was comparing an event like right. this to say softball. So I would say the biggest difference is when you're doing an NCAA sport um, or you're doing a professional sport in the U S the information is much more readily available to you where you can go find game notes. You can find you know, if you're doing an MLS game, you can go on the MLS site and you can find team game notes, formation, stats. Most of that information is in a fairly localized place where you can find it. You can go to PR people. You can go to sports information directors. To your point about pronunciations, when you do the World Cup, you have to reach out a little bit more. Even while we have this central research group, yeah, and, and pronunciations are important. It is important to me. It has always been important to me to try to get these things right. I don't trust a lot of people, I had a friend say, oh, well, you can just 
go on Google Translate. And I said, I don't trust Google Translate. Well, also, I'm technologically challenged and I'm not 100% sure I know how to use it right. That's just being totally honest. But um, for pronunciations, I our research people will provide quite a bit phonetically. And many of them, you know, if it's uh, Brazil, Australia, they both have a lot of players who have played in NWSL. So I, I know a lot of those players. But for something like Cameroon, as you brought up, for example, um, I ha- I first started off, I went on Facebook and I just reached out and I'm going to give this a try because I had this happen when I was doing the U20 World Cup and I wound up with a friend of a friend who was teaching English as a second language in Korea. So he then went through, I sent him the roster, got on the phone with him and he went through and gave me all the pronunciation. That was amazing. You definitely want to try to get it as close to the source as you can. Now, I think names are tricky anyway, because even if you go what you think could be the regular pronunciation, you still don't know how that person says their name. And But the reality is you're not going to be able to get every Cameroonian player to get on the phone and give you how they say their name. So you just have to do the best that you can. So I've gotten, uh, I have family who are hooking me up with some of the Spanish-speaking countries, Spain, Chile. I've got those two covered, coming from a cousin of a cousin or somebody who lives in Argentina. Um, I have another friend who gave, helped me out with Netherlands. Um, Cameroon, I still need to probably work on a little bit more. But there was one player on that Cameroon roster who has a fantastic name, Michaela Abam who played for West Virginia, who I covered in the NCAA Women's College Cup. So I've kind of been leaning on her a little bit to um, help as much as she can with, uh, with a couple of her teammates as well. The, um, what, is, what is your prep like for games the night before the game? You've obviously, as you said, you've done so much prep. You want it to be second nature so that it's sort of floating through your head. But, uh, you know, yeah. the night before, obviously, or the morning of, are really important times. So what are you doing specifically in the hours leading up to the game? Yeah, I would say at that point, I'm really going to narrow my focus because while it has had to be, I'm, I'm all over the place right now. I'm just gathering information on all kinds of different teams and countries and then club teams and different coaches talking to it. But when it gets to, you know, when it comes down time to my first game, Spain, South Africa, I am solely going to focus on Spain and South Africa. I don't want any of those other names floating through my head. I want to be able to trust my recall that it's going to be these two countries that have been on my mind most recently. So I will make sure as I would do for any game, you know, any college game or professional game where you're only doing one game and you're only focusing on that, that my focus will be really with those two teams. So I'll just, again, kind of be scouring news to see if there's any new news that's come out, digging up any extra video that maybe I haven't seen yet, talking if there's anybody other And I, I will say our announced team is, has been fantastic. They've all been really helpful. We have a good communication WhatsApp group set up where we're constantly sharing information. So just I, I would want to make sure I have all my bases covered for that particular match. And probably also going over most recent starting lineups because something J.P. Delacamera told me once that really stuck with me when you're doing soccer. Now we've got 23-player rosters. You cannot know all 23 as well as you would probably like to. It's just, and, you know, all 46 when you look at two teams in a game. So the ones you really need to know are the ones that I'll start focusing more on. The ones who I'm pretty sure are going to be in the starting 11 are the ones I want to make sure I know number seven 
who that is. And it's going to come to me when I see seven, I'll know the name. I want to be able to remember it a little bit more. So I'll work on just kind of that memorization. So I'm not constantly having to look at my board. And I will tell you that is way more challenging when you're full of unfamiliar names. I think we did in 2015, I want to say the most challenging match we did. And it is, I know, I know it involves Thailand. Thailand has about 20 syllables per name. So there is no way for me to remember those. I was constantly having to look to make sure I was saying it correctly. That was really challenging because you just feel like you never kind of get in the flow. Whereas once you're going, you're not looking at your boards all that much. You're really just, you're watching and every now and then you'll glance down for an extra little note, but you want most of that to be in your head. So that's, that's ideally the place that I try to get to the night before a game. What uh, what is the biggest challenge, Jen, of calling games off a monitor in Los Angeles via the World Feed? I think trying to deliver what the game deserves, which is everything that is around the game, the feel, how big it is, how important this is. I mean, this is a World Cup, and you cannot lose sight of that. I'm not in that stadium getting the goosebumps when I hear the anthems and taking my binoculars out and looking into players' eyes as they're standing on a field or watching the benches. But too bad. I have to still create that. I mean, that is my job. And um, it is, it's, it's being done more and more for big events and for domestic events. A lot of even professional events are being done remotely. Um, collegiate events, it's not ideal. Every announcer would tell you they would much rather be there in the thick of it. But it's still our job to convey that and um, to make sure that we have great energy. It's, it's hard sometimes to manufacture energy when you're sitting in a sound booth looking at a monitor and you're not feeling that heartbeat of a stadium that just goes through you when you're in it. So I do think that's the biggest challenge. I will, I will tell you that I feel like I've always been somebody that is fairly energetic. So I think that's a plus for me. I, I, hopefully that will come through. But I do think, I mean, this is huge. You know, I mentioned the player, Michaela Abam from Cameroon, and she sent me this wonderful email that I just, it totally captured the spirit of how much this event means to these young women. And you want to make sure that the audience feels that. So I think that that is definitely the biggest challenge. How does uh, you you work for multiple networks, uh, ESPN, SEC Network, Fox, and so I wonder how that works. Um, are you <laughs> essentially an independent contractor, and you'll go where the assignment is? It's uh, clearly both networks, even though they compete sometimes, they're cool with you appearing on both their airwaves. But I, I guess how challenging is that as a career? where you're not necessarily permanently assigned with one network, but you're floating to different networks? Yeah. Well, first and foremost, I, I would have to thank the networks for allowing me to do that because they don't always allow that. And you can understand why. You know, People want voices to be connected with their network. And I've done it kind of a long time. I mean, I really cut my teeth with Fox. I was with Fox Sports South for almost 15 years of my career and then occasionally got some opportunities with FS1 through that. And then really with that, I would say the SEC network creating, being created by ESPN is where I got an opportunity because most of my work had been done with the SEC and the ACC. So I was very familiar with that network and living in Atlanta, you know, I'm, I'm right in SEC country. So that's kind of where I started to get my foot in the door there. And I really, and I truly am grateful 
both ESPN and Fox in particular for allowing me to continue to grow and find opportunities because they realize if they are not going to give you a full-time type opportunity where they can give you everything that you want to continue to grow. And, you know, I want multiple sports. I want soccer and basketball. I've loved getting to do softball. It's a new sport for me. Um, you know, and I, I want to be able to, this is my career. I want to do it as much as I can year round. Um, so saying that it is a balance. It is tough sometimes. And um, I've done it for a long time. And I will say the only way that I think I've been able to do it, you know, I have a family, I have kids. I give my husband a ton of credit because he's had to be the one that's carried the weight of having, okay, I have a regular paycheck. I have a regular job. I have insurance. Thank God for our kids. If, if I did not have a husband who had those things, I think I probably would have tried to force the issue a little bit more and make sure that I had a full-time job somewhere because I would need those things. So I, I hope that makes sense. You know, I've, I've been allowed the luxury of being able to play around a little bit and find my niche and get better. And I've been able to do that. And um, you never know, you know, in this business, you just never know. There is no guaranteed next contract. There's no guaranteed job that's coming your way next. So I would love to maybe have a little bit more <laughs> solidity there, but uh, we'll, we'll see. Well, we'll see how I, I'm, I'm happy that I've been able to do as much as I've been able to do and that I'm still doing it. Yeah. This is where a good accountant comes in, Jen. (laughs) Yeah, that is, that is the truth. God bless him. Um, when did you decide to start to pursue play by play? Um, because I know earlier in your career, you did sideline, you did other stuff, but there, there clearly was a, um, you know, a moment in time where you decided that you were going to shift to do play-by-play, which I think obviously makes you more um, – maybe marketable is not the right word, but it gives you the opportunity to do obviously many different things. But there must have been a point in your career where you decided to do that. What was the genesis of that? Yeah, I think it was a shove in the back of somebody saying, you, you really need to go try this. So I was terrified. I, it, was, it was a couple of things. It was probably around 2014, maybe end of 2013, as the 2015 Women's World Cup was approaching. And um, I had had my eye on that because I'd been working in NWSL and then prior to that, WPS. I was an analyst in WPS and a pretty horrific one, if I'm being honest. I worked hard. I listened to the coaches, but my tactical knowledge of the game as an analyst (laughs) was severely lacking. I can definitely say that with assurance, having worked with some other people. And I think, oh, that's, that's, that's what I should have been doing. Well, okay. I did the best that I could. Um, but I also knew to that point that my career as an analyst, I, I think I knew. I knew that no matter how much work I put into it, that was really not my strength. And the next great player who decided to retire and wanted to get into TV, why wouldn't a network invest in them and put them in that role? So I didn't want to compete with that. And similarly, in doing sideline, I always put a lot of work into sideline, and I took a lot of pride in it. I know you, Richard, have talked with enough people who have done that role to understand how much goes into it. It's much more than most people know, and if you're good at it, it's 10 times more than people know. And um, the return on your investment as a sideline reporter, I feel like, is very small. You, You do all this work, and you're only in little bits and pieces of a broadcast. So I thought, okay. I want to continue to work hard. I, that's, I don't mind doing that. I know that's part of it. But I want to feel like I'm truly 
a part, a valuable part of a broadcast. I'm making a difference. And then I don't even know how it, somebody just kind of did shove me in the direction and say, you need to start trying to do this. And I remember one of the first things that I was scheduled to go do was a softball double header in Minnesota, which ironically is where I just was for super regionals this year for the big 10 network. I said, okay, softball. Sure. I'll give this a try. I didn't, I never played softball, not one of the school. I did play one year, but very young. So I didn't know much about it. And, um, I said, all right, well, I'm just going to lean on my analyst. Like, they're, surely they're going to give me, you know, a former player or a coach or somebody who knows something. They gave me someone who is a broadcaster who also never played or coached softball. So I was on the plane to Minnesota going, oh, my God, we are going to get exposed. We're going to bomb. This is going to be terrible, but I'm going to do the best I can. So then I will just tell you that Mother Nature intervened. Rained out both games. All we had to do was a weather report. <laughs> um, so my play-by-play career got off to a rather inauspicious start, but I got more chances in sports that I did know. Basketball being first, I think, and then soccer coming after that. And um, I loved it. I mean, I really was terrified to do it because of all the decision-making that comes with being a good play-by-play announcer of when you say what you say, when you go into stories, how you set up your analysts, all of it. You know, it's not just calling what you see, which is what you go and telling yourself at the beginning. Like, don't be freaked out. Just call what you see. But it, it is, to do it right is so much more than that, which has been one of the most gratifying and challenging things that I have done over the last two years is working on figuring that out. But man, when I started, I, I was stubborn. I was scared to try it. I didn't, I didn't really want to at first. I wanted to stay in my lane and my lane did not seem to be sitting in the big girl chair, as I called it. But I'm obviously really glad that I did because it has, you know, to your point, it just gives you so many more opportunities to, and especially now that there are more women's sports being broadcast, which is not to say you can't do men's sports as well, but obviously you're, it's a little bit of an easier path when you're someone who has been involved in women's sports on some level, either as an analyst or having played or whatever to kind of get that opportunity. So I'm glad I got that shove in the back. And Michael Cohen was definitely one of the ones who helped do that. I don't know if you know that name at all, Richard. He, he seems to know everybody in the business, but he was one of the consultants for the 2015 Women's World Cup, working with David Neal and who to hire for Fox. And then he was also our executive producer for the NWSL on Lifetime the last couple of seasons. The... Um... One of the things, Jen, I wanted to ask you was, and I realize this would be sort of tough to do because you're in the middle of your career, but is there any part of you that recognizes that your generation of women who are doing play-by-play, both for women's sports and men's sports, are really opening the door for the generation and generations after you where in 1960, 1970, it would have been almost unheard of for a woman, a woman to be doing play-by-play, certainly play-by-play in men's sports, but even sometimes women's sports, and now um, nobody blinks. It's, um, you know, nobody, um, you know, you hear Beth Mullins do Monday Night Football. There's only going to be sort of trolls out there who aren't uh, happy about it, but it's, you right. know, it's, it's just another assignment. It's, a, it's another game. And so I wonder if, that, if, there's, if that's any part of your thinking in that you're – a little bit of what you're doing is pioneering. I mean, there are people obviously in front of you, but you are part of a real early generation of what I think will be pretty normalized 30, 50 years from now. 
I, I absolutely think about it. I mean, I think about it. I have two girls, right? So they're growing up where the normal for them is to see their mom in this role and to hear my voice in that role. I, I never remembered hearing a female voice doing play-by-play. Beth was probably the first one for me, and I was lucky enough to work with her a couple of times when um, we were doing some Fox games together. So I was a reporter at that time for basketball. Um, I absolutely think about it. And I look around and I am so impressed with, A, what some of these young people are doing who, this is made me sound old now, these young whippersnappers coming out of school, what they get to do. But, you know, the experience that they get um, and how well they're doing with it. Um, Courtney Lyle, I think, is a fantastic young play-by-play announcer that's gotten a lot of work with SEC Network and ESPN. Lisa Byington, who I just had the opportunity to meet, and I was so happy to finally get to meet her because she and I have shared a lot of analysts from one sport to another, and so I'd often heard about her. But I think she said something that really rung a bell with me, and it resonated because it's how I feel as well. Because I was talking to her before I went did the MLS game for Fox, my first ever MLS game this past May, and it was the all-female broadcast, and Lisa had done that the year before. And so I was talking with her about that, and I told her she did a terrific job, I thought, and um, she said, yeah, and, and I asked her about doing football, and, you know, she was talking to me about that, and she said, you know, I just, I feel the weight of needing to do this well because if I don't, I'll set everybody back who wants to have this role in the future. And if I do it well, it'll continue to open up opportunities for people. And that is exactly the way I feel about it as well. I have a high expectation and standard for myself of what I want to do, but I also realize when I get this opportunity to go on a stage like the Women's World Cup or to call an MLS game for an audience that is not used to hearing a female voice, I need to go in there and do a great job because it's not just about pleasing my employer. It's about making sure that employer and other employers won't hesitate to open that door for somebody else in the future. And I, I, I absolutely think about that a lot. All right, two more for you, Jen. First off, you were the lead play-by-play voice for the National Women's Soccer League when it aired on Lifetime as well as Fox Sports. Um, I believe now those games are being streamed on Yahoo. I don't think they have a uh, you know, a traditional broadcaster cable outlet right now. Um, given how much you put into that league, how frustrating is that for you <laughs> that these games are, you know, at least at the moment, if you don't know that they're being streamed by Yahoo, you, you're not going to sort of run into it on television. No, they've fallen into the abyss. Um, and yes, I was very frustrated. I was very disappointed. Um, I was really proud of the product we put out for two years on Lifetime. I thought we had an amazing group of people in front of the camera, behind the camera, everything, those matches were broadcast are really high quality. And that is what that league deserves. It's what it needs. You know, people are going to watch this women's world cup this summer and they're going to see someone like a Sam Kerr say, my gosh, this Australian striker is incredible. And they probably have no clue that she has played in the U.S. for much of her career and has led the league in scoring the last two years and plays in Chicago. And they, they don't even know that. And that is a disservice to our league, to our players. You look at 
other leagues around the world, other women's leagues getting big title sponsorships, the NWSL definitely has some work to do. For a long time, they've been able to say, we are the best. We get the best women's players. We're the most competitive top to bottom women's league professionally in the world. And now they're going to, I think they're going to find that they're going to be challenged on that. But part of that is continuing to build and make this uh, a game that people want to watch and can watch because a lot of people are not going to search it out. They want to flip through their channels. If they see it on, you know, their direct TV guide or wherever it is that they're looking, they may pull it up, but they're not necessarily for all those other sports fans that you want to bring into the fold. Cause you cannot just rely on a niche of women's soccer fanatics. You've got to bring in a bigger audience. And to do that, you have to have a national TV package. You have to. So I truly do hope that the league is able to figure out, that and and find another home or or find a place to put games I would be surprised if they're able to do that after the World Cup because somebody's going to want to capitalize on everything that they see happening (laughs) out in France you know so um, I mean I I took some chances to join that league the coverage of that league with Lifetime I probably put some things on hold in my career was on a certain path doing certain things that I took a big turn, but it was really important to me. I've been a part of the women's game, the women's professional game through every iteration of the leagues here in the U S I really wanted to be in a role to help it grow and to push it forward. And yeah, when we got the call and it was in February, you know, less than two months before that league was going to start that it was not going to happen. It was pretty devastating, not just for me personally, but just to the bigger picture of everything that we have all worked for to try to help build that league. Yeah, I can imagine uh, for sure. Uh, All right. The final one, let's sort of end this on a little bit of an uplift note. (laughs) Uh, The world cup is coming up very soon. And as I look at the FIFA world rankings, you know, it strikes me that the USA, Germany, England, France, Canada, one of those teams is going to win the world cup. And maybe I'm even sort of giving Canada a little bit of a, (laughs) <laughs> push, push now that I live in Toronto. Love, but, maybe. <laughs> yeah, but so as you um, as you sort of look at the at the tournament, I think the, U, the United States clearly and rightfully is a favorite. What teams uh, among those top five do you think you would not be surprised to see holding the trophy at the end, other than the U.S.? Yeah, um, it's funny. I was just looking at this the other day because I have been so honed in on my twelve teams. I thought, okay, I probably need to make sure that I. <laughs> I'm paying a little attention to all of these other teams as well. Um, I do, I do think France on their home soil, but I think that can be good and bad. And Canada will tell you all about that. They they talk a lot after the fact about the pressure that they felt in 2015 and hosting. And I, I think they felt it got to them a little bit. All just the extracurriculars going on around the fact that you were the host. I think that's a ton of pressure. It can be a huge advantage for France and they're a really talented team anyway. But I, I, we'll see how they handle the pressure. That's, that's going to be a big question. Um, Netherlands is a little bit outside. I believe I think there are eight, maybe, in the latest FIFA rankings. Um, but, and they are one of my teams, so I've been looking closely at them. I mean, I look at their front line, and I think that is as talented a front three as you are going to see on any team. Um, Vivian Miedema, I'm working on my pronunciations now. I'm looking at them. Lika Martin, <laughs> and then Shanice Van de Sanden. I mean, that, those three across the front. And I think if, you know, 
Everybody loves offense. And if you can find a way to break down some of these teams, especially some of the teams that are not as experienced, not as talented, don't have great leagues domestically for their teams to play in. And that is the reality for a lot of these countries. They just are coming in and they've got women who are, they don't have a lot of time to practice together as a team. Anyway, those teams who might come in more of a defensive block, the, the teams that have the offensive capability to be able to figure that out and how to get through it, and that is a huge challenge for the U.S. We saw that in the Olympics. Sweden sat back in that block, um, and Hope Solo had her infamous comments after the fact about how they played as cowards, but they won, despite however you may think of the tactic. So I think the teams that can figure that out and have the offensive firepower to figure out how to break down those blocks and still play the way they want and create chances and finish the chances are the ones to watch out for. You know, Australia's been a little up and down lately. They just lost to Netherlands in a friendly, but, you know, I've seen too many of those players to count them out. Sam Kerr amongst them, who I would put up there along with Otta Hegeberg, who unfortunately we won't get to watch in the World Cup. She's chosen not to play, but I think, you know, Sam Kerr is right up there as one of the best in the world. So, um, I don't know. I I think those would be... England? England? You can't count them out either. They had such a great tournament in 2015, ended in heartbreaking fashion, which was one of the most awful moments I have ever had to call in my life on the own goal in the semifinal mm-hmm. <laughs> for them. Um, so, you know, I, I think I think those would be some of the ones that stand out to me. And the U.S. is categorically the, the favorite, but we'll see how they do. Yeah, it's going to be a great tournament. Jen Hildreth uh, will be calling the 2019 Women's World Cup for Fox, uh, when you check the schedule out, you'll see you're on FS1, you'll see you're on Fox. Um, you know, just uh, when you're looking at the broadcast schedule, you'll find her games. I think she starts off with Spain. Spain versus South Africa is your first? Yep, that's right. Okay. From my handwritten note that I sent you. That's nice. <laughs> now you see you're how handri- my notes look. <laughs> better handwriting than me. And then Canada, Cameroon, <laughs> and then Chile, Sweden, if you want to follow her. Yeah. Um, you can hear Jen, obviously, on ESPN, the SEC Network, doing play-by-play. She just came back from softball, which is uh, you know continues to get record ratings is, and is pretty amazing. And follow her on Twitter, and you can uh, continue to see her career grow. Uh, Jen, safe travels to Los Angeles. It's going to be an amazing tournament to watch. Thanks for a little bit of time today on the Sports Media Podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It was fun. All right, back in the studio. My thanks to uh, Jim Miller and Jen Hildrath for two excellent conversations. Uh, I hope you really enjoyed that. I certainly did. Head over to Apple Podcasts or Google Play or Stitcher. Please subscribe, sign up, leave reviews. That's how this continues. Before the current podcast, we had David Epstein, who's got a great new book out, uh, Range, Wild Generals, Triumph in a Specialized World. Daniel Dale, just hired by CNN. Sarah Sohi, a uh, fine uh, reporter for Yahoo Sports on the NBA. Before that, we had a media roundtable with John Orand, Taylor Rooks, blowing up with their DeMar DeRozan interview, and Jim Ross, the voice of AEW. Uh, they were on the May 16th episode. That was a really good episode. I love that one. Before that, Bruce Feldman. Tim Layden, Adnan Verk, Mike Lombardi, Jamel Hill, Rick Riley, Renee Young, Paul Heyman, whose voice you hear at the top of this. Uh, again, just check out uh, this kind of stuff if you like it. And uh, again, please leave us a review and subscribe. All right. As always, my thanks to Cadence 13, Chris Corcoran, Spencer Brown, uh, and all the powers that big Mick John McDermott. Don't want to forget him. All the powers up uh, there at the top of the, the Cadence 13 food chain. Thanks again to Terrence and Chris for their great work producing. 
And uh, we'll be back next week. Who the hell knows who the guests will be? But it'll be somebody. Back again on the Sports Media Podcast.